I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 259 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today's episode is a presentation by Jawan Ku on Angels, Demons, and Ketamine, originally presented at Morbid Anatomy Museum on June 11th, 2023, as part of our Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult series. Be sure to check out my previous discussion with Chawan on her book, Spellbound, A New Witch's Guide to Crafting the Future. That's episode 236 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl, where we've just started a Discord server, which has been great. It's been super active and it's been so fun to talk with everyone online via Discord. You also receive exclusive content at our Patreon every week uh, at the $5 and up level, uh, though there is a $2 and up level for people who just want to support the podcast but aren't necessarily interested in Magic Monday posts which talk about our creative and magical practices. Everyone has access to the Discord server, and there are other levels as well if you want to receive original art uh, or do rituals with us. You can also subscribe to Substack at vanessa23carl.substack.com, which is also just $5 a month, and you get the same exclusive Magic Monday content there at Substack. I appreciate your support so very much. I do everything at Rendering Unconscious Podcast myself, and I don't receive any support from outside sources. All the support comes from friends, fans, guests, and listeners of the podcast. So thank you all very, very much. You can follow Chawan at Chawanku, that's C-H-A-W-E. O-N-K-O-O at TikTok and Instagram. You can also follow me on social media at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. You can watch this video of this discussion at our Vimeo page. Links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org. Join me this Tuesday, September 5th. I'm presenting a lecture on Freud and the occult as part of the Last Tuesday Society at the Victor Wind Museum online. The talk takes place at 8 p.m. UK time. You can find more information at thelasttuesdaysociety.org, which also has a link in the liner notes to this episode visit renderingunconscious.org. For four weeks, starting September 10th, Carl Abrahamson and I will be teaching a class on the magic and creative potential of the cut-up method for Morbid Anatomy Museum. That's four weeks of two-hour classes starting September 10th on Sundays. Visit morbidanatomy.org slash classes or psychartcult.org for links and more information.
what do you say we get started? So everyone yep. ready? Good to go. All right. Welcome, everyone. We're so happy to have you today uh, for our psychoanalysis art in the occult talk. Uh, Angels, demons, and ketamine. Occultist Shawan Ku. Um, in conversation with Vanessa Sinclair and Carl Abrahamson. The Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult series is curated by Dr. Vanessa Sinclair and Carl Abrahamson and is dedicated to exploring the intersections and integration of psychoanalytic theory, the creative arts and occult practices, um, and folk magic traditions. I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Sinclair, who will introduce um, today's speaker and topic. Welcome, everyone. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. We're so happy to have Shawan here with us. Today, um, just for those of you who've never been to a psychoanalysis art in the occult talk before, we've been doing this series online for about two years with Morbid Anatomy. It's once a month. And we've been doing the series as a whole since 2016. Um, I used to live in New York and I used to run this series in person at Morbid Anatomy when they were down in Gowanus. And then when I left New York and moved to Sweden, um, we ended up starting it online during the pandemic time. And in between then, uh, Carl and I had a couple of conferences as well. So we had one-off events, but then we had uh, three different three-day conferences, one in London in 2016, one in Italy in 2019, and then one in Copenhagen uh, just last autumn in 2022. Um, so yeah, it's been a good mix of online and in-person events. We've had amazing speakers. We do collect some of the talks together and publish them as editions of the Fenris Wolf. Um, so I can put a link for those if you want to check those out. And um, yeah, we have a great summer planned here at Morbid Anatomy. So I can tell you a little bit more about what's next after Joanne's wonderful presentation. But for today, we're so excited to have Joanne here. She's a writer at the intersection of pop culture, the occult, and futurism. Her TikTok is one of the most popular occult accounts on the platform. She also interviews some of the most distinguished occultists and witches in the English-speaking world on her YouTube, Witches and Wine. Her book, Spellbound, details her journey from an atheist witch into one of the most visible East Asian practitioners of both Eastern and Western occult traditions. Welcome, Chawan. Thank you for having me. And I guess that I will start sharing my screen. I'm really happy to be having this discussion with everybody today because this is a topic that I've started to think about more seriously in the past year through my personal experience. And I guess my evolving interest in where the occult and also more modern modalities of not just psychotherapy, but also what people may call plant medicine, but also man-made kind of plant medicine comes into play. So what I'm concerned about now is this intersection. And I put a question mark here because we have this modern cutting edge therapy, the modalities of let's say EMDR, TAT, IFS, I'll go over what those acronyms mean a little bit more later, but you have that. Then you also have, I would suppose, what people would consider ancient or older uh, therapeutic, shamanic, spiritual practices like witchcraft, the occult, things like that. So I think that just to ground our discussion in some context, because I think a lot of it is 
me also trying to bring in all my personal experiences to the table so that when we have our discussion, uh, we kind of know where everybody's coming from. I think my personal story, just a very brief touching on it would be probably useful. And so I want to start with atheism because I've been an atheist since I was five years old. No one believes me. But I swear to you, when I was five years old, I had a nightmare. My grandmother came in. I come from a Catholic family. And she was like, oh, well, you know, you had a nightmare. I'm just going to spray some holy water around the room. And even at five years old, I thought, wow, this is a scam. And at that point, I thought to myself that, oh, this Catholic thing, not for me. But then as I got older, I thought, ah, this other religion stuff. Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever ism, not for me either. I saw it as a type of cult of mind and societal control. And so when I was a teenager and when I was a young adult, I was really into new atheism. And I get it today, this is very cringe. But back when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, this was like a really cool thing. This is very edgy. And these are the four horsemen of new atheism. Um, but at the same time, I found it very disturbing that new atheism claimed to be so objectively rational that they knew everything. And I was like, but isn't your being sure of objective reality, your inner subjective perspective that you know outer objective reality? So I was like, there's something that isn't right here. And so naturally I got drawn to psychology and psychology is something that I got into first through just run-of-the-mill self-help literature. I think I was really into Oprah's book club at the time. Uh, but then I started to notice that there were these underlying systems underneath psychology. So from the pop astrology, I started to become, as a layman, more interested in the more, I would say, academic or like serious systems. And I felt like these systems were really powerful and they could change people's lives and their self-perception. And I was like, yay, talk therapy, everything. The issue was that while I found some help and I saw people around me getting some help, what I also found was that the results weren't very motivating to a lot of people. It just took a really long time to see progress. And a lot of people just said, oh, you know, just talk to my therapist about the weather or about my dog for, you know, two years or something like that. And what I also saw was that people were just really being pumped with SSRIs and medication. Um, and again, very slow progress. And this is where magic comes in. So I do make a distinction between witchcraft and the occult. And it's, this is just my distinction. So I just want to first touch on witchcraft. So I've written about and talked many times on my social media about how I went from being an atheist and then becoming more open to witchcraft. I'm still an atheist. I still don't believe in spirits, um, but it's a very nuanced discussion that's kind of beyond the scope of this discussion, perhaps. But I consider myself a witch because I practice witchcraft, which I define as an ecstatic inner journeying to enact change between the inner and outer, and outer worlds. And you know that saying, as above, so below as within, so without. So I see witchcraft more as like this yin, receptive, feminine, often wild feel about it. Kind of like you're a surfer riding a wave. You don't try to control the wave, you're riding the wave. It's like working with the natural world and our natural selves. So to me, 
witchcraft seemed like psychology on steroids in terms of self-reimagining. And then naturally I went from witchcraft. So I first started off with this very, I'm going to say, pop witchcraft class that was filled with a lot of other people who were really into self-journeying um, and self-awareness. And I guess for them as well, psychology or other modes of maybe mainstream self-help just wasn't hitting it. And so I was with these group of other women and femme people. But for me, I happened to then delve more compared to my peers into the occult. I had defined myself also as an occultist. And I define occult as being more young, more masculine, a little bit more hierarchical. And often it's about the human will dominating the natural sense of the world. So this is often through choreographed rituals and these oftentimes grimoires or these books of magic that have very clearly delineated instructions. And the occult, it promised the sort of hidden wisdom and occult comes from the Latin, which means to be hidden, to be secret. And so this idea was like, there's this hidden wisdom that can leapfrog me and those who practice it into a self-knowledge, a knowledge of the world that psychology and religion could never, they couldn't ever even possibly. And there was that practice, of course. But at the same time, what I realized was that the more I got into witchcraft and the occult, and of course I had been into or been against religion, but all the time, all the meanwhile, been into spirituality, was that all these different modalities, they were kind of similar in that they all swore that this elephant of self-awareness, of self-journeying, of self-development was just their section of it. So maybe we can say um, spirituality and religion was saying, no, 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 this elephant is just the tail. And psychology was saying, no, 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 you know, it's, it's the, tr it's the snake-like tr trunk. And then witchcraft and occult was like this. And so what I noticed was that everything was just based upon that very narrow uh, way of viewing the world. So somebody who was into religion was always just, you know, praying thoughts and prayers, no matter what happened. And I found that people who were just really into psychology, all everything was about talk therapy and people who were into witchcraft. Everything was like, no matter what, you know, oh, I, I can't find my passport. Well, let's do a spell to find my passport. So I was just like, is that? Is that the way it should be? Because modern life, modern society is about intersectionality. It's about everybody's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So do we have to double down on this? I mean, couldn't this question mark be like this, just many circles in the intersection? But the question is, what is this answer? What is this? Is there an answer? What is this question mark all about? And also, even if you can figure out what this question mark is now, will it always remain the same? And that's why I'm so excited about today's discussion, because I do really feel as that, that intersection is always evolving. And maybe what we talk about today, it's going to be uh, outdated in a year, and maybe we'll have different ideas. But the idea is, is that we're looking for the elephant. What we're going after is the elephant, the full elephant rather than just the little parts of it. And here I'm just, you know, I love this illustration. For me, it's about don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
let's try to add in new modalities, take out modalities, discuss it, see what happens. And maybe for each person, it's a little bit different and that's totally fine. And some of the new modalities that I've been very interested in that I feel as though augment this interest in a type of spirituality that isn't quote unquote superstitious, although I use that word not as a pejorative, but more to talk about this idea of spirits and stuff. Um, and also a modality that takes into account ancient practices like the occult, uh, like witchcraft, and also modern modalities like psychology. So one of my favorite right now is IFS, internal family systems. And I think this is one of the most witchy, magical psychology systems that I've ever come across. And what's so interesting to me is that today, it seems as though so much mainstream society is very, very witchy. Maybe it's Oprah. Maybe it's some other uh, just sort of like business people even being like, yeah, I'm totally into manifestation. I'm totally into this. Even like 20 years ago, I think that talking about these things would have been considered a little woo-woo. But now um, mainstream psychology, mainstream self-help is just takes for granted that, of course, you know, like there is this idea of like mindset and this very strong sense of like magic in terms of like you can make and manifest things in your life. So IFS, <clears throat> excuse me, is quite popular. There's a lot of like Alanis Morissette, Tim Ferriss, these celebrities that are huge proponents of IFS. And I've really, really um, delved deep into IFS. And just uh, to go over very quickly what IFS is, IFS is a system that more or less says that we all have multiple personalities within us. And those multiple personalities are kind of offshoots of us uh, that happen because of traumatic incidents or, or intergenerational trauma. Maybe it's not us, it's things that have been passed down to us. But ultimately what we are is what's called the self. And the self can't be sullied even a little bit by no matter what happens in life. Like we could be thrown into you know, solitary confinement. We could commit horrible things. And yet the ultimate us, the self, is always, always constant. And it is filled with these eight C's. It's courageous and compassionate and calm and curious and confident and connected. When I heard this immediately, because I have this background in witchcraft and the occult, I thought, this sounds very much like saints and and religious icons this sounds very much like the god self that mystical traditions talk about and in ifs there's this idea that all of us you me our self which is who we actually are is very similar to somebody else's self we are those eight c's the calm the connected the confident the curious godlike almost like a buddha in a lot of ways. But then when we go through either intergenerational trauma or we go through just life in general, we become these parts. And these parts, you'll see in the middle, the main sort of part that gets sectioned off is called an exile. It's the most sweetest, creative, sensitive part of us. The exile then feels like they need to protect themselves by sectioning off because they've been hurt. And then 
two other kind of subtypes of these parts, managers and firefighters come in. The managers are here to try to be quote unquote good and try not to trigger the exile and try not to get them hurt. But inevitably chaos reigns in life and the exile is hurt and triggered. And then the firefighters come in trying really hard to make the exile not feel the trigger. And so the firefighter may do stuff like self-harm or violent things or addiction to try to numb out or try not to feel the extreme sense of anguish that the exile felt that actually made them section off. And so I thought, this kind of sounds like angels, the manager always trying to be good. Oftentimes this manager is a perfectionist. You know, whenever we say, oh, there's a part of me that like is so self-critical, is always a perfectionist. It's kind of like an angel trying to manage, trying to be good trying to win approval. And then we often also say, oh, but then there's a part of me, you know, it's, I immediately start to go into like eating, binge eating, you know, I want to just shoot up. I want to take my drugs. Sometimes I want to self-harm. Sometimes in society, we call those things like demons, our demons, our addictions, angels and demons. So I thought to myself, well, if the part of us that is constant who we really are seems like a God in some sort of ways. And then the parts of us that kind of are separated seem like angels and demons. Is that, and this is coming from this atheist point of me, I was like, is that the manifestation of us, the inner part of us that separates out and also the part of us that is constant, this Buddha godlike character, is that us projecting outwards? Yes. If we have those in us, then we're going to have that on the outside. We are going to have external gods. We're going to have external angels and demons. Now, in IFS, there is this incredible ritual that one does where when you integrate the parts into yourself, there is no bad part. It's just integrating and becoming an even perhaps larger, greater compassionate self in that way. There is this thing called unburdening where you take all those emotions that created the exiles and then you do a ritual that right here, it says often using imagery that involves one of the elements, light, earth, air, water, fire. Sounds like a witchy ritual to me. If you ask anyone about, Hey, what's a ritual that you can do where you give up something or you burn something or you offer something to the elements that's witchcraft. And that made me consider, oh, well then perhaps the therapist, like especially an IFS therapist, would they have been um, uh, in ancient times before modern psychology, would they have been the shaman? Would they have been the witch? Would they have been the, the person at the edge of the town that people visit when they're going through these things? A little bit separate from society, uh, but who's there to help heal. And I found this, so I'm Korean ethnically. And so here is this video that I found of, this is a Russian American who went to Korea. Um, and this is his Korean friend. And they went to Mudangs. Mudangs are Korean shamans. And the Mudangs, what they do is they talk to spirits of ancestors. They talk to uh, gods, oftentimes military gods, to see your fortune and to give you sangdam, to to give you advice. And so I just want us to watch a clip of what these two, the Korean and the Russian American, 
um, their response to going to the shamans. But that's that's kind of how therapy starts. Is the first session is has to be really yeah like warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so people because I mean I, honestly I'm yes they said a lot of right things about me. I'm kind of messed up inside, right? And so I'm really happy to hear them say that. So, because I haven't been to counseling ever since I came to Korea. Yeah, I think all kinds of therapists kind of do that. Mm. Because they want to open people's mind and they want to talk to that people's heart. Mm. I see a lot of positive positivity too. Mm. For Korean people who are traditionally very shy to open up about those kind of psychological parts, feel like shaman things, mudang, has been the only source where people can rely on to talk about the future because if you talk about this to parents they're probably gonna be like why do you even talk about it you're mentally weak you gotta stay strong but then you want some alternative right Right, right. I think until the stereotype or culture breaks in Korea that it's not okay to talk about depression or anxiety or your life problems or actually going to a real doctor for help until that's broken I think this is one of the best um, alternatives personally about the fact that foreigners really need a lot of mental clinics. You know what I mean? I see more common for foreigners. Mandy and you talked about the importance of having those mental clinics, but I've never seen many, any of my friends talking about that issue in Korea. So by the way, like Korea is like the 11th largest economy in the world. It's extremely modern. Um, so many people would assume that, well, you know, this is a place of Samsung and LG, big screens, like big cars, um, Gangnam style, K-pop culture. And yet it's the the mudangs, the shamans, who are going to be sometimes a first line of self-development and inner journey for a place like Korea. So the next thing that I started to really get into, especially this year, is psychedelics. And this is what's so interesting about psychedelics. Psychedelics has always been a part of magic. And I mean, we talk about just the, in Korea, we were just talking about shamans. In Korea, the origin myth of how Korea came to be is that a bear and a tiger, they went into a cave and they ate mugwort, which is very psychedelic. If you're going to pick, mugwort is very famous in Korea. Um, it's considered one of the best mugwort in Korea. The people who pick mugwort, they have to wear gloves because if they don't, then the mugwort, it kind of seeps into your skin and makes you hallucinate. So this is not the only origin story of a country that involves psychedelics. And of course, ayahuasca is really popular today. And this idea of being in a ceremonial circle with somebody who is going to help you journey. There's even talk about how the Oracle of Delphi was high off her rocker, you know, because at the mount, um, there was some geological formation where there was gas. There was some sort of ethylene gas or a mixture of ethylene and, and other gases that made them hallucinate. And there's also talk about how when we talk about a witch, you know, flying on her broom, that flying ointment, maybe it was also psychedelic. And I've watched way too many TikToks of young people talking about, wait a second, these these mushroom circles where supposedly if you enter into it, that means you're in the realm of the fairies, mushrooms. 
psilocybin. Could that be it? And so naturally I thought, so for most, if not all of history, magic and so much of spirituality, I mean, incense, for example, back in the day, I mean, you would go into a, a mage's room or maybe even to a temple or church and it was just thick with incense. Could that have also caused mind altering perceptions? So why are we doing dry magic today when people are being taught magic, probably because of the laws and also social mores, there isn't much talk about the use of at least official talk about the use of psychedelics or the use of even other drugs. In fact, it's kind of um, discouraged to use drugs like alcohol. You can offer alcohol, but to imbibe it, not so much. And then, of course, a lot of people today, they take drugs recreationally or they do it because they want some far out mind expanding experience. But if we go back to what we were talking about previously, which is that maybe therapy and therapists are kind of taking on the role of a shaman, and that was a role that they always took. So is there a way to take the psychedelics in a therapeutic setting and does that make it different? And this is not anything new. I mean, we all know that back in the 60s, psychedelic research was huge, but then it was shut down. And it's only now, six years later, that there is this renaissance of psychedelic research that's happening. Literally, like the national health organizations in America, and I think also in Switzerland, they're doing research on psilocybin, they're doing research on LSD, uh, they're just mainstream podcasts and and I think that recently there was a Netflix documentary by Michael Pollan talking about psychedelics. So this is becoming more and more mainstream. And so ketamine therapy, ketamine-assisted uh, psychotherapy, CAP. CAP sessions are legal in certain states in the United States, including New York State, where I'm at, which is where I've, um, I've actually had seven CAP sessions thus far this year, which is kind of intense. Um, and CAP sessions, they're supposed to be done, they're prescribed by uh, a doctor, and they're supposed to be done only in the purview of a psychotherapist. So it is a therapeutic setting. The ritual container, the magic circle is you either take a sublingual or some IV that is ketamine, and then there's a therapist there to help you integrate the session afterwards. So you journey, and then you have a guide there, and then after you get out of the journey, you have this guide, help you integrate the visuals that you saw, the experiences that you had. Psilocybin is also on its way of becoming legalized in a lot of places. This is from August, 2022. This is expanded now. Um, I have a friend who's a psychologist who's working with Columbia University and Columbia University just finished, I think a multi-week um, seminar about psilocybin research and about the, the way that in a therapeutic setting, people would utilize psilocybin. So this, of course, made me think about this book called The Eight Circuit Brain. Um, this is based upon the work of Timothy Leary, who everybody may know as one of the pioneers of LSD research. And just how this is just the eight circuits that, you know, like one through eight are energy centers. And so we have circuit six where they talk about how certain drugs can actually activate or help activate these circuits, which are energy, almost like chakras inside of us. And this is to me very occult. 
this is very, very witchy, very occult to be talking about this. It's, you know, and Timothy Leary, who, as far as I know, wasn't super well-versed in straight up occultism. It's not like he was like, oh yeah, Golden Dawn. Oh yeah. Like let's look at grimoires of demon magic. And yet the research that was happening was in so many ways occult and it was very much aligned with these drugs. We have the scientist, Dr. John C. Lilly. He's the guy who basically made the claim that human beings and dolphins could communicate. And he was doing LSD for eight hours at a time, like in his flotation. I think he invented the flotation devices, the isolation tanks. And he would just like lay there, take LSD and just communicate with dolphins later on. And he wrote a incredible books about metaprogramming, which is basically how the brain knows what it knows. Um, and the book, back to this book, it goes over not just circuit six, but circuit seven. By the way, as we go up in the numbers, each circuit becomes more and more, I would say, elevated in certain ways. It's almost like we're going from the root to crown chakra. And so like in circuit seven, we have LSD, but then also you can do certain yogas and then here we have in circuit eight which i suppose we can say is like the top part of our chakra system dmt and ketamine these are ketamine is if you do cap sessions completely legal in a state like new york colorado places like that and dmt is something that i am starting to experiment with in terms of like doing actual occult rituals ketamine and dmt they unlike let's say lsd are far more short-lived, and also they create a sort of clarity. There's an ability that one has after journeying after ketamine and DMT where you can actually talk with some eloquence versus I find that psilocybin, um, it kind of takes away from maybe the ability to have conversation. And obviously LSD, it's like going on for hours and hours and hours versus these two. DMT is like notorious for like, what, five minutes, maybe tops, 10 minutes, 20 minutes experience. Ketamine can be uh, for maybe 40 minutes journeying or something like that. So these things are actually, these two uh, substances, these psychedelics can be very conducive when you're doing a literal occult ritual. So now we go back to this. How can we get to this question mark? How can we discuss this? How can we incorporate modern modes with the ancient modes. And I feel like this is something that I'm going to be thinking about and discussing for at least a couple of years, because I only just started thinking about it in the past year or so. And I am so excited to have this discussion with everybody here. Very nice. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. A lot to chew on. Um, Kyle, did you have any comments to start or do you want me to start? Well, I think that there there's a lot. I mean, these these topics are are uh, first of all so fascinating and um, interesting, and also uh, I would say quintessentially important to the survival of the human race. Basically, uh, <laughs> to to sort of stress that. Uh, but I think that uh, all of these things, I'm I'm with you 100 in this sort of. Uh, importance of questing and trying out all the new things and and uh, trying to see similarities and, and bridge gaps and all these things. I think it's extremely important. And I'm not surprised that this is happening uh, today or in these times, because that's one of my sort of pet, 
I don't know, uh, theories or or things that I think about. So why are all these things going on right now? Well, I think that magic or whatever you want to call it, I've, I've uh, called it like the source magic. You know, we all are connected to a source and it's all about survival now. Some of us understand that that's the issue. Uh, most people are still slumbering in a kind of anxious slumber where they know something is wrong. Like there's, uh, uh, you know... No, I was going to say purple haze, but it's orange haze in New York. And, and we haven't had rain for a long time here. And it's unusually warm, etc. And there's war and, you know, the usual suspects. So basically things are not going so well. I mean, most people feel that either consciously, intellectually or on, on deeper levels. But we are all affected by it. So how do you deal with it? Well, I argue and we sh maybe we shouldn't delve into that, is that we have to reconnect to this kind of source magic. And then the question, of course, is, yeah, but how the hell, how the hell do you do that? And I think to um, keep it simple in a way, I believe that what is needed, that, that is related to all of these things, whether they be technical, psychological, uh, trippy, uh, magical, it's all about validation of the personal experience on the inside. Because we are brought up in, in these different systems, you know, more or less conservative, more or less far out, where um, everything is sort of dictated or guided by external uh, things so that we can only validate what we've experienced through, like you said, for instance, the, the therapist guiding the session or the, the ayahuasca um, guide or whatever it is. But I believe that, that the real change will come when we sort of self-empower ourselves to, to just see, I had this amazing experience while walking the dog, while taking a trip, while having this magical ritual. And it's real. It's absolutely real because I experienced it. And whatever it is, no one can say um, anything about it. I am very happy to talk about it with other people to compare experiences. And that's the first step, right? There you have uh, the willingness to go into a dialogue uh, about can this actually be used for something that is uh, on an objective level beneficial for me, for you, for a greater number of people. Uh, and I think... It may sound like a simplification, but I like to break things down uh, to get this, like the smallest common denominator or the smallest usable, useful denominator. And, and that's really it. It's about the outer and the inner. Uh, us as that sort of self person that you talked about, um, trusting what we experience, whether on the outer through the senses or whether on the inner. Um, that that needs to happen on a larger scale. Otherwise, I think we, we're going down the drain. Because if everyone is always looking for answers or explanations or uh, obedience in a way from some higher master, um, then it's just going to continue over the uh, edge. I'm preaching almost. <laughs> no, I think that makes perfect sense. And it's exactly yeah. what Joan was talking about in the beginning with like, okay, this person has this like Catholic religion. And so they do everything through that lens. And this person has this new atheism perspective and they do yeah. everything through that or this witchcraft where we do a spell to find our passport. You know, it's like, you can't, you can't always be looking to the system to like validate what you have to say or how you're supposed to think. Um, and through this kind of shamanic journeying or using ketamine or these kinds of systems, 
um, that's a great way to kind of break out of those barriers. It seems like when I had Shavon on the podcast, um, you know, she talked about the, like having it be like this kind of, like you have these like rigid tracks that we're all skiing on and then the ketamine kind of helps dissolve the tracks a little bit so you can get into like new patterns and modes and ways of thinking uh, kind of more readily that rather than like psychoanalysis, you know, which I hope people do, it works, but it does take a long time. You have to keep going through the material over and over and over. And then like, oh, there you're doing it again. And then you can kind of like, ooh, can I get out of this track and like de detour? And then, oop, we're racking it again. You know, you have to keep trying to like move this way until you find a new track, you know, but this system seems like it helps you kind of move through that process quicker when someone's like really motivated to do that. Hmm. What I find super interesting about maybe melding of psychotherapy and the occult is that I find that a lot of talk therapy, which is the mainstream way I think of how most people, they do psychology, right? They go to a therapist, they sit down on a couch and they just talk and talk and talk. It's very analytical. It's very analytical versus the psychedelics um, which are a very integral part, I think, of any ancient occult practice. Um, very, very few shamans and um, these like priests even were sober when they were doing these like ceremonial rituals. When you do psychedelics, though, it's not analytical. You go straight into the body. You go straight into imagery. You go straight into visualization. And what, in my experience, the, the guide, the psychotherapist who's aiding the ketamine session does is, okay, you journey for... 20 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever. You journey, and in the journey, you'll feel things, and some people see a lot of visuals. For me, ketamine isn't quite as visual, but I'll have flashes. But then afterwards, I will literally, this is where the analysis happens, not in me discussing the actual thing, but us discussing, almost like, you know, that movie, The Ring, that horror movie from Japan, where they were watching that cursed VHS and there was just symbols and, and visualizations and trying to figure out what do those mean? It's very, um, it's very much like that. Like you're analyzing that. So it's almost like the intelligence of yourself comes in before the analytic brain, which is very deeply influenced, I think, by authority comes in. And so you're talking about these images, these journeys that you had for 20, 40, 50 minutes, even up to, and the therapist is there just to help guide you in trying to parse out why did you have this visualization of John Malkovich, right? It's almost like dream analysis, but before you actually have the cap session, you put in an intention. I would like the session to be about X, Y, Z. And so that intention helps guide. It's almost like you're doing a tarot reading where the question of the tarot reading influences how you're going to interpret the cards. So putting in a strong intention, having the journey, and then analyzing it. And analyzing it, the therapist being trained, CAP session therapists, they, from what I understand, the way that they've been trained is to be less of a, well, this obviously means this, or that obviously means that. It's very much especially because my cat therapist comes from an internal family systems modality. It's very much like, what do you feel about it? What does this part of you feel about it? Which I think is a very radical way of seeing this. And yet it's been a system that's been utilized in the past many times, but now it's almost like modern psychology is now realizing, Oh, wait a second, this is how we used to do it. Or this is at least partly how we used to do it. Maybe we should try it again like that. Mm -hmm. 
No, absolutely. And I think that that's the thing. It's about empowering. I mean, to have a, a therapist like that, basically saying that what you're experiencing is totally fine. It's up to you to interpret it. I can help you and guide you and structure it a little bit. But but the the ball is really on your side of the field. You you have to to uh, look at what you're experiencing. And again, the, the analogy or comparison with, with the dream life is, of course, obvious. You know, uh, it's a great big world in there when we sleep and only fragments come um can be brought with us to the waking state but we all you know um realize that's a third of our lives you know that we spend (laughs) sleeping and dreaming that's a huge chunk and and to sort of negate that and say oh dreams are just this it's just like fragments in a chaotic state of mind whatever um to me is absolutely ridiculous and you know so i think that that um that's one place to begin in this overall empowering process um, and not necessarily saying to people that, you know, this coming weekend you have to go on a psychedelic trip or, you know, get involved with ritual magic, but just, you know, writing down dreams and seeing what you think that they mean because it's kind of um, safe, right? You know, most people have sort of pleasant dreams or some may have nightmares, but they're both crucial to the fact that something is in there wants out to you know to for you to focus your attention on to to bring the unconscious to the conscious and that's exactly what it is that where uh, authorities of so many different kinds have said that no this is just this this is you know again this is something demonic this is just a dream chaotic uh, fragment from the day before just trying to marginalize and minimize the importance of you experiencing something that makes you go wow you know, it's it's a decimation of the wow factor that might actually be a key to how we can live more, um, I don't know, pleasurable and insightful lives. You know, encourage that thing where you seek out experiences that are, I would, um, yeah, perhaps say transcendental in the sense that they go beyond the completely expected, they go beyond the completely rational, they make you go wow. You know, and and that can be done in so many ways, of course. But all of those ways and experiences are absolutely um, necessary to reach levels of insight. And that's where you have to validate what you experience yourself, and not not um, listen to other people saying it means nothing, like in a nihilistic way, because everything means something, according to me. <laughs> Carl has a theory that our waking lives are only there to make us tired so that we can sleep and have our yeah, dreaming lives, yeah. which are the real sustain, lives. Sustain the organism. <laughs> I'm so on board with that. Great. I do want to share, like, a, I want to share, like, a, an experience that I had. Um, so last, just a couple days ago, like three days ago, I taught a class on demon magic. So I was teaching Ritual One from Damon, Brand, uh, sorry, Gordon Winterfield's uh, Demons of Magic book. And it's a very technical ritual. It is ceremonial magic. And ceremonial magic, I like to describe as a type of choreography. Um, There's a certain set way that you have to do things. And you have to be pretty damn precise about the way that you do it. Now, what I realized as I was teaching the class and people were, you know, asking questions along the way, was that one of the greatest things that I learned from doing a cult ritual was learning how to have, quote unquote, what's called authority, right? You're doing these spells 
And you can't just be like, uh, hello, excuse me, demon, can I ask you for a favor? Instead, when you do the occult ritual, you're going in there almost as a peer to an Abrahamic God. In this ritual, you're using, you're intoning, um, you know, the names of the archangels, you're intoning the names of God, not in like a pipsqueaky voice, but like deep, like you're doing it from your gut, from your balls. And I was like, this is why so many occultists have this reputation of being complete assholes, right? Because you kind of forget that you're no longer in the ritual, you know, hello, you're, you're in the world. But in the middle of the ritual, you go in there with what I can just best describe as swagger. You're going in there saying, me and, and Abraham and God, it's not like I'm like, kissing God's ass, you know, like I'm a peer. And because I have authority, that's why I can change reality. I'm going in there completely convinced. It's a, it's a fact that I can change reality because I and God, me and God, we're, we're the same basically. And that sort of sense of authority is what builds and creates great magic results. And many young occultists I don't know what's happened in the past couple of years, but maybe because of society, they've kind of shied away from authority, self-authority. And what has happened is while I was teaching this class, people were like asking questions like these questions that I realized they were asking me as the authority. They weren't saying like, oh, I'm the authority. They were looking to me as authority, almost like the priest. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. This is not. This isn't what I wanted that was my not my intention, right? So that made me realize that maybe it's the human nature, I don't know, to always seek outside daddy, sky daddy, earth mommy, whatever, uh, to have this authority. And maybe that's where the occult practices, even if they're done dry, are so useful because it forces you, if you want to have results, to have self-authority. What do you guys think? I think that's really interesting. And I think yeah, you do have to get to a place where you're, where you're, yeah, having that swagger. And I liked your differenti differentiation between witchcraft and occultism. That's really interesting. And witchcraft being the more like yin, feminine, like wild, you know, working with nature and getting tuned into the body. And then the occultism being these like more structured kind of elements that are more masculine. Um, that's a really interesting kind of way of looking at it. And I'm definitely, I definitely tend towards the witchcraft side and do everything like really intuitively. And, um, and then like Carl's been through like a lot of these systems and like this kind of organization and then has, you know, over time, like broken out of them, like been like, it's like, it's like you have to learn the system at a point in order to see like how you don't need the system anymore, you know, and then, and then you can have your kind of own authority rather than looking to a system that someone else has developed. Um, I feel like that, that can happen for people a lot too. And then they can kind of step into their own more. It doesn't mean that the systems and the spells aren't useful anymore, but I feel like maybe sometimes people need that structure of that kind of written out system um, before they have that kind of feeling that they can do it on their own, you know, and then, and it could be a way to have an authority. I kind of had laid out the system without having needing like a guru or a master to talk to all the time. You know, like have the system could be like a pseudo authority that you can work with until you can kind of step out on your own more. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. I think also to, to tie in with your, your question there that, that, um, we, meaning basically homo sapiens individuals, 
uh, have an inherent need of being in a context, let's call it tribal for simplicity's sake, where there is actually one person going on the transcendental journey and sharing the experience for the little tribe or group or society, whatever it is, uh, because we have that in, in our gene pool. You know, that's been traveling along our genetic development since, you know, let's call it again, you know, primordial times, whatever, prehistoric times. So I think that what changed where things became very problematic because when societies and cultures grew, simply in numbers became, you know, unfathomable, you know, to structure these things and you needed proxies. So you have priests or sort of diluted versions of the shamans uh, offering the same kinds of services uh, and people were fairly happy with that, but it became sort of diluted. And then you have the, the bigger religions, the monotheist ones where everything is almost like, I don't know, uh, sometimes I can feel that they're fake. You know, what they're offering is not really real. However, I don't want to be, um, condescending in a way, because if it fulfills something for that individual who goes to mass or who goes to whatever and it makes them happy, then absolutely fine. Um, but what I, I believe is that that's only a weakened remnant of something that was stronger when the little collective was much smaller. And then, of course, seeing how the shaman works, the shaman was always like an outsider and still is in a way, uh, going on these crazy journeys, being a bit, little bit mad. That was part of the game, part of the job. Uh, and of course, that's not for everybody. Uh, but most people want to have a taste, either by proxy from a shaman or uh, a weekend recreational high or getting drunk or ecstatic in some other way. I think that's absolutely quintessential to human well-being to have those experiences. Uh, and that's where we come again to this thing. Uh, there needs to be some kind of cultural integration saying it's okay to do that, you know. Uh, and that's where it's, I'm so happy to hear about these developments uh, in America and also in other places where you can do these things that you're doing. That it's become okay that LSD is back in a way. Microdosing is in the mainstream. Michael Pollan is in the mainstream. As you say, it's wonderful. It's totally in line with, <laughs> my theories that's why i like it uh, <laughs> basically saying that we need to do this because it's high time literally high time for us to take new steps otherwise we're completely fucked uh, and it might be too late but then at least we can have some fun while going down the drain um, so i think that that um, the seeking out of gurus may not be a total construct. There may be an inherent need of being in that context, looking up to someone who will help you. You know, that's why you have, you know, tarot readers or someone who is not an official priest, someone who has some secret knowledge that you may, you, maybe you know it's complete, you know, a scam or bullshit, but you still want to be in that um, proximity to someone who feeds back to you what you aspire for what you dream about what you hope for um and i think that's it's it's a very um human quality uh, some would say probably a human weakness i don't think so it's simply a genetic psychological remnant from an earlier part of our cultural development yeah and one that we should return to I wonder if now, because what I'm seeing, like I spend hours upon hours a day on TikTok. Um, I am deeply immersed in Gen Z culture. And what I'm seeing more and more is these kids, like everybody talks shit about Gen Z, but what I'm seeing is that there's a huge amount of them that are incredibly intelligent, mature. They are completely and utterly like 
open-eyed about the systems of control. And for them, it's no longer enough, even if there is that genetic imperative for a guru, they no longer want just that one source. They want to be the source. I see as a trend, and I don't know, maybe the genetic imperative is changing thanks to the younger generation where they're like, even though I want Sky Daddy and Earth Mommy, I want to be the authority and I want to learn how to be the authority, but nobody's telling me how to become the authority. Everybody wants me to be a follower, to be sheep, but they're like, but I'm looking around, the earth is dying, the politicians are useless, the military's crazy, war everywhere, everybody's isolated, everybody's like on drugs, like to numb themselves, not for ceremonial reasons, but to numb themselves because everybody feels so disconnected. So this is an emergency situation. I can no longer rely on outside authority, even if I want to, no choice. And so this is where I see these young people wanting to become their own authority, but also be in communion with other authorities, but never just as a follower. And yet, of course, they're still young, so they can't help but sometimes fall into the trap of being a follower. And yet their, their antennas are always up being like, wait a second, are you scamming me? Are you trying to take away my authority? Which is the reason why I think a lot of older generations, they have friction with Gen Z because they're like, you young people don't listen to us. We know we've, which is kind of true sometimes, you know, sometimes Gen Z, they're just making shit up on the moment. Right. And yet at the same time, Gen Z is like saying, you're trying to tell me what to do, you know, fuck off. You know, like I know what's best for me. Sometimes they don't, but you know, they say that. So what I'm seeing is a very huge shift in this younger generation. And I think a lot of it has to do with the lockdown. It has a lot to do with technology in a TikTok world, it's very, it's a lot easier to become your own authority because you're intaking a lot more information. Um, and I also see an in increase in mental instability and triggering because you're becoming your own authority. As you mentioned, Carl, um, if you are the guru, if you are the shaman, you're going to be a little bit, you know, you know, out there. That's just part of, that's the tax you pay to become your own authority. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I'm seeing. And this is where I feel as though the occult, like forget the psychedelics for a little bit, where the occult and witchcraft is starting to take its place in terms of like, I can, the occult and witchcraft is saying, I can teach you how not to be so crazy out there and ground yourself through systems of witchcraft and occult. And maybe that's the reason why it's becoming more and more popular. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I also think that... Uh... There's an inherent glamour in the word occult and the occult history and stuff like that. People right. will always be attracted to that kind of flame. Uh, but absolutely, there is enough substance in, in all of this uh, underneath uh, this kind of weird umbrella called occultism, you know, because it can be so many different things. But there's enough substance there to attract uh, intelligent people who are really looking for something. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that, um, I don't know, it's... Uh, I have this uh, term called sympathesis, uh, which is basically that we also have an inherent need of constructing our own systems in order to transcend them. And this can, of course, you know, spill over and become systems that attract other individuals and they uh, are attracted to that and they need uh, like... Um, uh, it appeals to them because of resonance and they need to transcend that in order to, you know, feel that kind of next level jump or whatever. And that's a problem with 
Western occultism historically, uh, specifically, because it's been so intellectual, so structured, so historically conscious of taking this little bit from this and organizing it. And it's, it's, uh, of course, that's the Western empirical scientific mind frame in a way. You, you know, create these puzzles and then you have a puzzle and you realize, oh, this is not so good, but we're great. We built it. And then, um, the, the thing is that from, you know, take, you know, the Korean culture or Asian culture. And I'm not even thinking of Buddhism. I'm thinking of something much more beautiful, Taoism, which, you know, has structure in the culture, but the ideas and the, the sort of um, transcendence is immediate if you want it. You know, you can just go into that zone uh, and you don't need degree systems. You don't need a high, uh, pyramid, pyramidal hierarchical structure uh, that takes you like 15 years to go through and then you all you get is a funny hat, you know. Uh, it's enough to, to have a good laugh and realize that all of this stuff might actually be pointless. So I might as well, you know, sit here and do, do nothing in a way and do a lot <laughs> while doing nothing. Uh, so I'm greatly, um, uh, I don't know, enamored with or inspired by that kind of thinking. And it developed parallel while I was working in these Western systems. So I guess that's kind of my uh, magical immune system, you know, triggering that instead, which is much healthier in a way. However, I, I will say that regardless of which culture you come from or where you are in the world, some system will attract you and then you will integrate your own stuff into that structure. And that's needed to simply transcend it. I don't think it's healthy to stay in the same thing uh, all of your life. And that's, again, another downside with being, you know, a fervent monotheist. You know, you're born, you're baptized, and you go through all these rituals that's supposed to be, you know, setting you free or creating a, uh, something good in your life. But it's just like inane, boring stuff that everybody shares. And it really means nothing because it's not encouraging you to be free on that transcendental level. Um, so... I don't know. Human beings are creative. People who are attracted to occultism are also creative because they have a need to transcend. And some people go the fast route, do psychedelics. Other people are more mentally structured and need to break it down by going through the system. And I guess eventually it's all good, or I hope it's all good for those people who are involved in these different things. Um, but maybe um, the best analogy that I've come across is simply, you know, a cult, as you said, it's something hidden. Uh, since we moved to a slightly more smaller town and we have a garden and stuff, these garden analogies become so uh, vital. You know, the seed is underground. The seed is in darkness. It's occult, you know, but it carries all the stuff inside. And given the right uh, opportunity, water, good nutrient soil, and some sunshine, you know, <laughs> you can go overground and you can create a flower that's not only beautiful, you're not only beautiful, but you also actively take part in a photosynthetic uh, symbiosis with the rest of the planet, even if you're a tiny, tiny, small flower. And that for me has become the more, the most, I don't know, uh, powerful symbol of everything that I've been doing so far, going through these sort of murky environments and hierarchical structures and symbols upon symbols upon symbols, when in actual fact, that symbol is the, the most real and tangible image of what it's really about. It's about you going from this sort of inner darkness 
cultivating what you have there, also stemming from uh, beyond, from, from ancestors, and just bring it up, bring it up to the surface, uh, make sure that it gets everything it needs and be a happy and beautiful flower. Just this idea of networks, right? I think one of the big things about modern life is that instead of being this hierarchy, it's all about networks. And people hate it when I bring up things like blockchain and cryptocurrency because they don't see the connection between technology and machines with the occult. Whereas I'm like, occult is technology. So what are you talking about? But anyways, um, just in terms of pure blockchain, what is that? It's a network of computers that are communicating with each other. It's not like there's a main top computer and then it goes and filters down and down and down. And one of the things that I write about in my book is about this idea that first started out with, uh, I think her name's Donna Haraway. She's the anthropologist who talked about cyber feminism and now has moved on to talking about um, the natural world and the networked way that whether it's the brain or whether it's mushrooms or whether it's plant, just nature, the most natural thing in the world is network, which if we really think about it, is kind of a feminine thing. It's, you know, there's something wild and witchcrafty about it. There's something super witchy about the fact that these are tendrils kind of reaching out, grabbing onto these things, almost like a garden. It's like, mm-hmm. you can't predict how the roots are going to go. You can't predict what the seed is going to do. You can't predict how the things are going to interact, but everything's an ecosystem. And so you mentioned Carl about this idea of like, Oh, the, the Western way of seeing things was that it's like little parts, it's a puzzle. And then you put it together and you're almost like a clockmaker, you know, like you're a machinist and the human experience is like a machine with all these, like, and perhaps it's not like that. Perhaps it's not this, like this very modernistic, like man versus nature and man dominates, but Mm. instead it's this networked feminine lush, almost like a Swedish garden, English garden, kind of blooming beyond our control. And this is where I think that people can see it either as chaos, oh my God, I'm freaking out, or how do I become like that surfer and ride the wave? And this is where I think we can discuss more about like, what are some practical systems that people can use? I'm sure both of you have experience in this on what actually helps people in managing this wild bloom. Yeah. And like you said too, like, it's not just about finding, you know, how to connect these different systems. Also like weeding out what doesn't work. Like we don't need this and we don't need this. That's also important. And I think one of the things I love, I love a lot of what you say, but I also love just you, as a person, because you do exactly what I think people should do. And this is why I think you're so popular online too, because it like inspires other people to also kind of find their own, like piece together their own journey, see how it's unfolding, see how past experiences fit together and feeds future experiences until you become this kind of idiosyncratic way of being in the world that only you really have from your kind of experience in history. And then instead of being a guru where you you, you tell people how to do that for themselves, it's just like just by you embodying that and working in your way that you're working, that then kind of turns on other people where they can start individuating and figuring out their kind of idiosyncratic specific thing of being in the world. And Mm. yeah, I think that's really where it's at because that's, 
you know, you're not like a therapist that tells people like, okay, well, you should do this and this and then gives advice. You can, of course, give tools, you know, there's no nothing wrong with like pointing people to directions that you found useful and systems you found useful and saying things you didn't find useful. But at the end of the day, encouraging them to see for themselves what they decide, you know, what, what systems works for them. Because like you said, it's, it's different for every person. I think that's the best way forward. Mm. Yeah, I think so too. And I think also the the analogy between, uh, well, let's call it, you know, web culture or whatever, you know, there's a root analogy there. You know, of course, these are roots. We're all connected in a kind of a huge human mycelium. And and if someone is in pain in another part of the world, uh, I can feel it because that person will send me an email. It's just like a nerve cell. It's immediate, you know, oh, I feel your pain. Um, or I can find some wonderful information that, you know, just clicking away in my keyboard. So in that sense, it's, it's amazing. It really is the best of all worlds. Uh, however, I do feel that it's, uh, it's like a brain, right? You know, uh, with synapses going and nerve cells, and we're exchanging information and reacting and filtering. Uh, and that's very, very beautiful and unique. That's never happened before in, in human um, evolution. Uh, that said, it seems to me to be uh, kind of flat, you know, or two-dimensional in a way. Because again, what people need is to look inside, meaning sort of shut their eyes and not be connected to the, the tool. Uh, the web or this mycelium might be a tool that you are more or less constantly connected to uh, for good and bad, but you can also distance yourself from it and simply go into silent meditation, close your eyes, and what comes, you know, you can add on with psychedelics or you can add on with some, some ritual aspects. Um, th those kinds of moments are, I think, quintessential uh, in order for us to understand the overwhelming uh, good and bad power of the mycelium that we have. Uh, because otherwise it can also become like a behemoth, you know, that devours everything in terms of simply time, energy, effort. Sometimes we don't even know why we're spending so much time online, <laughs> you know, because, well, you know, it's it's a, some bling here and some bling there. <laughs> it's a fascinating, uh, again, garden, you know, but maybe to stick with that uh, analogy or, or symbol, maybe that's why we are attracted again to these guru figures. They are like curators. They're like gardeners. We're attracted by how their gardens look. And so we want to take part of that, not necessarily to become a flower in their garden, but to smell it and be inspired when we create our own garden. Uh, so... Uh, for instance, uh, I personally prefer what you said, like the, the English slightly super lush and, and uh, almost wild garden to a very tightly curated French uh, castle Versailles, garden. Versailles, yeah. Versailles, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, so in that sense, we all have our preferences. And the reason we have our preferences is not only because of like some abstracted taste. It's something that we have inherently in us because of where we come from, what we've experienced before in this life and previous lives. You know, so so I think um, that kind of uh, intuitive attraction along those lines, you know, finding your ancestors and where you come from, you know, could even be a genetic analysis through DNA analysis, but just learning more about where you come from. I think that's important. Uh, that will probably explain quite a few things, why you are attracted to the things you're attracted to. That said, we live in remarkable times. We should be more intelligent. We should be able to solve these problems. Um I don't know, though. We're definitely intelligent enough intellectually. Yeah. See if our yeah, 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 emotional yeah, yeah. intelligence can get a little bit Exactly. Better. 
<laughs> and the sense of connectedness. People need to feel that they're connected. And I mean, I think that goes for all three of us and probably, you know, a lot, a lot of people have felt that in moments of epiphany and insight, how that's induced, that is irrelevant. But we've felt that connection on a, a holistic um, way. And I think that's um, something that you need to hang on to and not forget. It's not a recreational epiphany that disappears on Monday morning, or it shouldn't be. It should stick with us and see that we're all... Um, totally within a much deeper mycelium too, which is organic and, and alive, which I think the internet is not. The internet is a wonderful tool that sort of mimics a mycelium in a way, mimics a brain, mimics the synaps synapses. And we can sort of uh, exchange information and find information and store information and exchange information in so many wonderful ways. But it's not, uh, it's not the organic thing that we're connected to. Could As help facilitate our organic connection, yeah. perhaps. It's a it's a wonderful tool. No, I love that analogy. It's this idea of like if you're in the rainforest and you're part of that ecosystem and you know, the monkey screams in the distance and then all the birds fly and then, you know, like there's information being shared and then you you observe plants like evolving to do certain things to survive. And yet you are your own self. You have your own roots. You have your own needs. Yeah. The internet absolutely can be very shallow, superficial. There's this term that the youngins use, it's called chronically online. And they'll say, <laughs> oh, you're just chronically online. You need to go touch grass, you know? Yeah. So they're no, already intuitively understanding <laughs> that you need to do that. I, I think a lot of it too is that um, this idea of going within there's almost like, I want to say that if you're somebody who probably has the means to engage online, you probably have a job, you pay for your internet, you know, you're paying your taxes. There's almost like a gate inside of you that is not opened easily. Because if you did, then you couldn't live in this modern world. You couldn't participate in late stage capitalism. You know, you'd probably be institutionalized. You might be homeless, whatever it is. And so in that sense... And the thing is, is that that deep sort of um, access to things that can be integrated in a very, very deep way, this is where I think the psychedelics come in. And maybe this is the reason why research has shown things like psilocybin is four times more um, conducive to helping people with depression than SSRIs. Um, and just from my experience, and I'm not talking just about microdosing, I'm talking about also heroic doses, um, but they need to be done with a guide some sort of guide. But that experience of having that door opened, which I personally feel would be very, very difficult, if not close to impossible to do without the aid of plant medicine, without that plant medicine or man-made medicine, because ketamine, mm -hmm. LSD are man-made. Those are also a type of guide. Without those, it would be very difficult to access anything underneath because you have to shut it. You have to keep Pandora's box down. Once that Pandora's box is open, though, what I've noticed just from my personal experience, and also I'm part of some organizations in New York City of psychonauts, um, like the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society, et cetera, when you meet people who, where they've had, you know, some of these people, they've had like 50, five, zero ayahuasca ceremonies that they've been to, like over the years, they're very different from the quote unquote average person. Somehow, because, you know, 
they're part of a society. So they've learned how to integrate it so that they can open and shut that door. But man, the first time you open it, it's wild. It's crazy. But at the same time, I wonder if that is the missing link for so many people without that door being opened. I would say for me, it would be very difficult for me to feel like I had authority. I was doing occult rituals and maybe Carl, you can also speak to this when you're doing occult rituals, um, when you're in that system and you learn authority, you're learning it, but it's almost, it feels sometimes like cosplaying, you know, you're kind of like playing authority and then you go onto the real world outside the magic circle and you're just regular self, you know, but then experiencing the psychedelic and having that door open now the door being opened more than once, it's sort of like, oh, this is what accessing, let's say, really deep intergenerational trauma feels like. This is what accessing like yourself feels like, like deep self feels like. It's a very different authority. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, also uh, we are, again, in the sort of the Western society, we, we're... Um, taught that you know it's all in stages it all leads on to somewhere um but it's usually kind of you know finite stages basically you go to kindergarten then you go to school then you go to high school and then you go to college and then you simply get a job then maybe you get a another job but it's still sort of so segmented and so compartmentalized that people of course find you know uh, safety uh, illusion of safety in that sort of comfort zone and it's hard to get out of and people you know well why should i try this weird thing that people told me about will change my life you know and that's instead i think why the urge to change gets filtered perhaps specifically in america through self-help books self-help programs 10 easy steps for thousands of dollars it's a kind of super light version that doesn't really bring change but gives you a contact with a part of it so soothing a part of yourself that has that need you know instead of going for the whopper you take uh, you know get that book and go that course but but it really leads nowhere you just show to yourself and the world that you're not fully satisfied with the complacency of your life um so that's of course a huge market <laughs> in the western world uh unfortunately but but i think that i don't know it it is such a problematic thing you know because how you can't really proselytize either and say you should do this you should try this because then you become just one of the guru gang you know and and uh, i don't think anyone really wants to do that except for people who want to make a buck you know and usually those I are have a god complex yeah, have a, have a Christ complex, exactly. <laughs> and those are usually, you know, successful for a while, and then they get dethroned by some younger stud or... or uh, Cancel culture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who wants to go to the throne? <laughs> That's just part of, of uh, I guess, uh, the succession of different cultures. You know, there comes a young one who, who takes the place. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's complicated. But I do see the, the optimistic upside of all of this is that so many avenues are completely open, you know, because even if you are in an environment where it's illicit, for instance, to delve into some of these things, uh, you can still do it. You know, it doesn't, you mm -hmm. know, you, nothing will happen if you're intelligent and uh, nothing will happen if you're sort of occult <laughs> in that <laughs> sense. Uh, and if you're lucky, you might be in New York or, or uh, California or Denver, or wherever, you know, or Switzerland, and you can do these things completely overground. And again, it, it's not all about psychedelics. Is it legal I, I, in Sweden, by the way? 
There's a lot of psychedelic research. There's a lot of psychedelic research happening if you do it with a therapist. Yeah, yeah, it's going on. Yeah. But it's not it's not huge programs. It's usually uh, hospitals housing them, and you know, uh, so there are good things happening here too. And on the whole, it is a pretty liberal place, even though it's from a legal point of view, it might look tough. It's a difference between the the legal writing and the actual application. You know, what's actually uh, possible. So I would say, having been here for all of my life and seeing these things change, they haven't really changed a lot. It's still possible to do a lot of things and, you know, get away with it, as long as it's not connected to any sort of other kind of criminal activity, you know? That's usually when it becomes uh, problematic. Uh, but usually psychedelics don't, you know? <laughs> They're usually <laughs> fine in that sense. People who, who are interested in them are not the real rebel rousers of a sort of, of a criminal nature, to my mm. experience. No. So I think uh, Swedes don't have the moral. They don't have like a Christian moralism. No. like you have like in the U.S. It's really refreshing. <laughs> They're just kind of like but this it, is what people do. You know, they're kind of realistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then also I think that that also ties in with the the really genuine traditional respect for nature that we have here. You know, we have 10 million people, and it's a pretty big country. So uh, from we're kids and and through school, everything we're out in nature and encouraged to be out in nature. And there's a huge respect for nature. So it's basically uh, some kind of paganism still lingering on, uh, not just like genetically, but actually in application, how in lifestyle. And I think that's very, very healthy. And it's also in the constitution that everybody has a right to nature. So like yeah. nobody can own like all this land and be like, you have to stay off your trespassing on my land. Like everybody's allowed to walk around on the land because the land is yeah for everyone. Yeah, and camp and, and just enjoy it, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's so also cool. nice. Mm. Oh, I see we have a question. Felicity? Ooh, maybe she's typing. Anyway, feel free to ask a question if you want. To. Yeah, yeah. Um, And we could... Okay, good. Talking permitted. Now it's, I think Christina made it so you can talk if you want to. Felicity. Felicity has a hand there, yeah. Hi, Felicity. Hi. You need to unmute yourself too, Felicity. That was an accident. Um, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, and I was going to say, too, though, that uh, one, I find it very refreshing to hear that uh, Gen Z are being their own authority. I think even with the foibles of that, it's much better. Um, and that's how you learn. You just have to have, like, the, the errors and things and the hubris sometimes, and that's okay. Um, well, they have much tools better that we never had. Yeah, much better than yeah. thinking that you have to have permission to do anything from this authority. But also I see why they get overwhelmed because, you know, I'm at, like living in a world where you don't have an authority that you think like a good parent that's taking care of things. You're like, oh, shit, all the previous generations fucked all this shit up. Like we can't look at them to help us and how like terrifying that feels, you know, so it's kind of like this double edged sword of like feeling like they need to do on their own as well, like not having not having that kind of holding um, that, of course, we didn't either, but at least maybe we thought we did for a second or something. I don't know. Gen X, we didn't really either, but. <laughs> right, Gen X here. And I, when I see the amount of, I would say, openness 
uh, that Gen Z has, sometimes it stuns me. Like I read an article that said that a lot of colleges, you know, you have to put in your college essay when you're applying to colleges. There's this entire phenomenon of people writing about their intergenerational trauma or traumatic life events, like just trauma dumping um, for their college essays. And this is totally okay. On TikTok, every other TikTok is somebody revealing the deepest, darkest secrets of themselves, completely like emoting, you know, like completely emoting online for strangers with like. For me, as part of Gen X, like this is like not acceptable. Like I, I just can't do that. Even if I wanted to, even if I'm desperately wanting to, I just can't do that. And I think it's a cultural thing. It's a generational thing. And yet I see these young people being like, okay, I have nothing to lose. We're all going to die. There's no authority. All I have is me and this pain and anguish. I feel that a lot of it is not even my own. It's what I was born into. And nobody's telling me shit. I don't know what to do with it. I'm looking for answers. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. They're like yelling into what they hope is not a void. So there's a sort of hopefulness as they exhibit a certain type of like semi-nihilistic, but done in an ironic way. Like <laughs> they have their own sort of sarcasm and lingo thing going on. I personally love Gen Z. I think Gen X and Gen Z, like we found millennials. I think Gen X found millennials a little bit like cringe, like, oh my God, you know, Gen Z is like us, <laughs> you know, Gen X, like back when Nirvana was out and stuff. So <laughs> I love Gen Z and Gen Z loves Gen X as well. And what I'm finding is that the way that Gen Z is doing things, I like it. They're using the internet as a tool. Like they can search up, how do I grow mushrooms? If I can't buy them legally, what can I do so that I can legally sort of circumvent? I don't have money. So is there a site where I can download resources for free about how to grow things, how to do witchcraft, how to do that? This is why in a way I sort of encourage uh, my social media following. You don't have to buy my book. Just go to like the Barnes and Nobles that's still standing in your store, or like in your town or whatever, and just read it there. You know what I mean? This is, you know, don't, you don't have to spend the money. Okay. Just go there and just read the book. It's probably better for you to just like, you know, leave the house anyways and stuff and just like go out into like the world. So it's things like, it's a very punk feeling. And I was like, that's what it is, huh? We're doing chaos magic 2.0 now. Like that's what Gen Z is all about. They're just like eh, cult systems, not into it. Eh, religion, not into it. Chaos magic. Ooh, but chaos magic is like very like old to them because it's like oh, it's a bunch of like dudes from like Great Britain talking about magic and comic books, you know, <laughs> like back in the 80s and 90s. And so many people who are really identifying as witches and occultists today, they identify as queer, they identify as being feminine, femme. Um, this is becoming like the new sort of like wave, I think, of serious occultists and, and witches. Very different. To them, being a witch, being an occultist is not just a thing that you do. It's one of the many intersectionalities of their identity. And it forms an umbrella of all these other things that they also are into. They, it's a part of a political alignment, a political direction. <laughs> to me, this is amazing. This is fast. I highly encourage everybody, if you're not on TikTok, go on TikTok, just scroll for two weeks. In the beginning, it's going to be super confusing and it's going to be kind of boring, but then suddenly it's going to click and you're going to be like, holy shit. The amount of stuff that's being, that's going on on TikTok is amazing. 
Yeah, that's great. And um, I mean, the city mentioned it was similar in the 70s. And the, that seems clear, too. Like, also, there was a big surge of psychedelics in the late 60s and the 70s. And it was a similar kind of time of upheaval. And um, there was a lot of the similar issues happening then that are happening now. It's just now it's even more critical <laughs> with the environment. Yeah, but I think, isn't that the sort of circles moving within circles? It's like a, a groove that then goes another round. It's almost like a planetary or an uh, electronic, atomic movement. Dynamic spiral. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's sort of, um, maybe that's why the perception that I have, at least, I think some other people do too, of time moving exponentially faster, which is worrying, you know, but we are seeing the same thing. You say you talk, talk about the age of Aquarius or Aeon of Horus, whatever, you know, something happened during the 20th century. And a big part of that was like a resurgence of magic, a boom of psychedelics, a boom of Eastern religions, a sort of merging of religious thinking and occult thinking. And, and, um, I don't know, it's like a, a supermarket of potential, you know, there's so much happening that you could pick and choose. And we're exactly in the same position now with this technological tool and the ability to, to travel quite freely and explore, you know, firsthand. Uh, so I think um, I wouldn't describe it to any sort of kind of divine or cosmic intervention. I think it's human beings unconsciously feeling that something has gone awry and we need to fix it. And that's why all these things are, are happening. That's why people like, you know, dry scientists like Albert Hoffman um, accidentally, you know, managed to co fix some LSD and that changed the world basically, you know, and, and there's a reason for it. He was a good guy and he re realized the potential yet it was through this sort of illegal madness of Tim Leary and those guys who spread it. And then it became sort of uh, after 1966 uh, in illicit production. And it's just, you know, it, it has literally changed the world. There's no, no, uh, no denying. Um, and of course, it's not one evil genius creating all these things. It's not one little group of power people. It's just necessity. You know, all these things happen because of necessity. And and I think uh, it will continue, hopefully in the right direction, with more people becoming, um, I don't know, insightful and trusting their own uh, in, inner experiences. Yeah, if we're in the 70s again now, then hopefully we don't go into the 80s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but some people may argue that we kind of are. <laughs> yeah, I think that's inevitable. But <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully what the internet and also what all these tools, whether it's the occult, psychology, psychedelics, plant medicine, whatever it is, once that information is out there and it's out there in ways that it wasn't out there in the 60s and 70s because we didn't have social media, we didn't have the internet, even if the government comes in, even if authorities come in to try to shut things down, it'll be a very different um, outcome, hopefully. And my hope is that as this discussion continues, because I think that this, because Psycho psychedelics, plant medicine, it's a very new development, I think, in the past only maybe two, three years, and it's going to keep on becoming more and more legalized and unscheduled in America, at least. As the conversation continues for the next couple of years, <clears throat> I'm very excited, curious, also a little bit scared to see how it's going to develop. But I have a lot of faith. <laughs> I have a lot of faith in both Gen X and also in Gen Z of being able to kind of push things through with that punk attitude. And um, I know that I'm going to still continue 
doing what it is that I'm doing and continue to write about and figure out like, is what I'm doing chaos magic 2.0 or is it a completely different offshoot? Is it like the difference between, yeah, Thai food and Korean food are both Asian, but they're very different. So can you call it chaos magic? I'm, I'm starting to think that what I'm doing and what people like me are doing, it's not chaos magic. We do, we look nothing like the chaos magicians who like started chaos. We, we look nothing like them. Our life is nothing like them. So even if some of the things we do are similar, how can we be doing chaos magic when we're so different in terms of who we are to the people who are doing chaos magic? So mm-hmm. in terms of magical frontiers, I think that in the next couple of years is going to also be very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think also that that what you said could be symptomatic of of, uh, what's going on generationally now also with these um, uh, questing for a clearer sense of identity, you know. And it's again, it's like a pick and choose and you can create your own identity and present how you identify. And and, uh, that can also be, as you said, uh, which kind of magic system that you integrate in your presentation of yourself to the world. Uh, but maybe, maybe uh, the devil's advocate here, maybe that also has a drawback in the sense that if you have clear cut presentation, it will feel good to be clear, you know, <laughs> but it also makes the critics and other people it's so easy for them to criticize, to point their finger, to judge and say that, you know, Okay, so you identify as a chaos magician, but you don't do this, or you identify as a, as a queer guy or a queer lady or or other uh, sort of um, specialized presentations. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes it's good to be occult and, you know, to be literally sort of hidden under the radar, uh, just zooming along, doing your thing um, and not being part of... Um, uh, let's call it a um, a struggle of and for mirrors in a way where you look at yourself and you're so absolutely um, it's important for you to show yourself in the mirror, but then to turn the mirror with the mirror image outwards. And then other pe- people can mirror themselves in that and see yes, no, or maybe. Uh, and it becomes like a, a fun house in a way. Uh, and I mean that both in the good and the bad way it can be inspiring to see all these other reflections, but it can also be something you don't get out of. Uh, yeah, where in I fact, you might, you might need to open a window and look out instead of looking at the... Um, touch grass. The, yeah, 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 <laughs> touch, touch grass. grass. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So so what I'm saying that is that, say that I think that many of the terms like, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, magic and occultism and chaos magic or... Or, or sigils, whatever, maybe it's all becoming uh, redundant in the sense mm. that maybe it should be, you know, kept absolutely quiet, secret, occult. And you can share it with people who understand your wavelength, your sense of uh, frequency in a way. That's just normal human behavior. But it, I think it becomes a problem when, when um, we want to communicate with other people, then we need to do it in a language that both parties understand, right? So we have not only a language, but it's also uh, symbols and it's also references. And the more we reference the past, the heavier and more difficult it will be right. to leave it behind, you know? And I think mm. we should just uh, perhaps uh, take a couple of quantum leaps forward and just, uh, I don't know, I'm so in love with the with the gardening metaphor. <laughs> <Me> <laughs> <too>. Gardening. <laughs> Get on with our cosmic gardening. 
<laughs> cosmic yeah. gardening. Love and it. I think it is good, like Joanne brought up earlier, of like what tools do we use? You know, we've done so many different kinds of systems and things. And like Carl and I do talk about that. We have on our Patreon Magic Monday every Monday, where we write about like what kind of magical practices we're doing that week, which often involves like art because it's all kind of intertwined. Um and usually, like right now, I'm mostly working with the cut-up method because I'm just like obsessed mm. with cut-ups and, yeah. and kind of like breaking down systems quite literally by like chopping up language and throwing it in a box and rearranging it and pulling it out randomly and see what it says. And there's always like so many amazing like messages and things in that. And people are like, oh, what do you think that is? It's like... I think it is whatever you want it to be. It could be your unconscious talking to you. It could be your own interpretation. If you want to think it's like some sort of spirit talking to you, great. I don't care. You know, like for me, it's like whatever you want, you want it to be. But it always has some like cool messages and things. And that's what I like to do most of the time now. I That just reminded me, part of the IFS therapy that I do, and I used to do it intensely, like we're talking, I had an NFT, speaking of technology and how it's made all this more accessible, I had an NFT that I bought last year, and they had a program where you can do unlimited teletherapy through, you know, like this, this app. And I found some great IFS there. They don't have this program anymore. They ran out of money, but it was great while it lasted. So I was doing IFS therapy five days a week sometimes for like, so I logged in over a hundred sessions in about six months, right? Because I was like, I'm, I'm, this is a buffet and unlimited thing. I'm getting my money's worth. One of the IFS therapists, what they specialized in was art therapy, utilizing IFS. So doll making, puppets. And I was like, wait a second. So we're going to create puppets of our parts. And I was like, oh, and you put whatever you want inside the puppet, right? You create like a puppet, you create the doll. But if you want to, it's not, you know, this is kind of off label, but I was like, I'll just put in a little bit of my hair. I was like, if somebody robs my house, they can take whatever. Please don't take my puppets because it has like my DNA in it. Um, but now I have a collection of puppets that are um, representing my different parts. You get into the mindset, you create a magic ritual, a circle, you get into the mindset of the part, you create the puppet in the mindset of that part. And so I'm not somebody who ever goes, who experiences panic attacks or anything, but while I was making one particular part puppet, I went through a panic attack, the first one possibly in my life. So you are literally going into that mindset. Um, and to me, that is magic ritual when you're so deep and immersed in a different aspect of yourself that you're no longer you. I, I see that as you're in magic, right? And so you create this poppet and then you evolve this poppet if you want. Some people, they will burn the poppet. They will bury the poppet. Some people will add on to the poppet. Some people will deconstruct the poppet. You can do with the poppet what you want afterwards. And I was like, you know, so many of us in magic, we're taught to make a poppet, but we're doing it for external people, right? We're, we're doing it for external things. But this is for internal. This is an internal poppet. You are, but like, it's a spell for yourself. This has been so therapeutic. I have several dolls now. My goal is maybe over the next couple of years, have a wall of creepy dolls that represent the parts <laughs> of me. 
and for them to evolve over time and their physical manifestations. So going back to the idea of angels and demons and gods and how some people say, oh, they're outside of us, they're external. As an atheist and somebody who doesn't believe in spirits, me being like, that's a bunch of shit. But now realizing that if I can externalize the parts of me as these dolls, what's to say that other people have not externalized the parts of themselves as spirits? Like, I can't say that for sure, right? And so this has also softened this atheist skeptic in me in the terms of like, spirits aren't real. Because I'm just like, well, as far as I'm concerned, all the parts of me are real. And so who's to say that the projection of it is not real? And then I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, oh, I get it more now. Totally. Absolutely. That stuff we like a lot too, like creating like, Carl Nulevay and like total environments and creating like a totally environment that's just like your kind of world that you can kind of step into or is that you don't just like have a magic ritual at a certain time and place but you kind of have a room in your house where it's just like this is where I live in my kind of alternate reality it's so great and different kinds of like like that role playing or externalization like taking on different characters and acting out scenes that's all used in different kinds of like gestalt therapies and stuff, but it's also totally like magical and theatrical. Mm. And I think also we, we uh, evolved it a little bit with uh, from the artistic point of view too. So that, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I came up with this idea called the mega golem, which is a magical creature, Ooh. but it's in- invisible. It's intangible. It's inaudible. It's basically a magical being. And I invited other magicians, friends, artists to create something, you know, it could be like a limb or a hand or a finger or uh, a kidney or whatever, you know, to, to together to create this thing. But it's not like a thing where we need to list who did what. People can create something for the mega golem. I have no idea what it is. Only the mega golem will know because it's been invested by all these people. And, and the mega golem is out there and it's doing things. Uh, I can sort of... Uh, feel its presence at times, but it's kind of wild out there in the world. And it basically came from my disdain with the art world, you know, where everything is so hyper-contextualized, hyper-curated, hyper-intellectualized, hyper-abstracted, and and also validated from from a commodified commercial point of view. And I just thought like, you know, fuck this shit. You know, let's make a magical creature that no one can ever touch, see, hear, uh, possibly notice its effects because it is a magical creature that obeys uh, at least some of the people who've invested in it because that's just how it works uh but it's not something to be um you know yeah sell uh, it yeah you can't sell it you can't buy it you can't sell it you can add to it if you want to uh, with anything it can be doesn't have to be a body part even because who knows what it is it's just a, a magical being it could be a being of many different kinds. Yeah, like is I made there... a spine. I took a bunch of cut up phrases and I put them down a piece of paper. Oh. And I'm like, this is the spine of the mega golem. And this guy, Pete Murphy, just made a song with like using my cut up spoken word. And he said he called it a film is the mind of the mega golem. So now we have yeah. film is the mind of the mega golem, things like that. Wow. So this isn't like um like an occult ritual that was in a grimoire. This is something that was developed collaboratively. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and and it came mainly through the art angle. 
as you as you've noticed, we're very interested in in you know uh, yeah. psychoanalysis, art, and and the occult. But I mean, this is something that came initially from the art thing to create some uh, artwork that is you know simply not visible, non tangible. Uh, but of course. Uh, being us and where where we come from is like imbued with magical power. Why? Well, because we say so. We decide so. We invest it. Now you have a life. Be responsible. Please do our bidding at times. You know, but you're free, free to roam the the universes uh, and and come say hi at times. And I know for a fact that people are still investing in it. You know, adding little things. Sometimes they tell me. Sometimes tell they send us that, things, like somebody carved yeah. a thigh bone out of wood and a just femur, like mailed it to yeah. our house, and we're like, "What's this?" <laughs> like, "Oh, it's, it's the thigh of bone the of the mega <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So, so it's yeah, it's wonderful, and I mean, so so that's another example of exactly that. You know how how um, you can take uh, some pretty uh, you know classical arcane uh, concepts from you know occult history like the golem or whatever it is and just turn it into a mega golem for the times that we're in you know it, it's not something that belongs to one specific religion or or system it's just something that human beings with a magical inclination uh, for them it's completely natural to create this kind of being you know and and i really love it i think i will soon create some some more stuff for it I'm just the mind. My mind is just like, this could be so therapeutic and so constructive oh, absolutely. for families, yeah. couples, yeah. work organizations even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm thinking also, you know, Vanessa mentioned uh, Anton LaVey. He had this concept also of integrating artificial human companions, basically interacting with dolls, like uh, life-size human uh, dolls. Uh, and not necessarily for sexual purposes, but for conversation. So he, made out. he made them. He made them. He built his, and had his whole basement filled with them. Yeah. He had a bar down there. Yeah. And so basically that's also something that I think uh, he appreciated. Uh, you know, he died in 97. There was always something, you know, brewing. And I think today also it's, it's, it's coming, you know, people are going to hang out with, non-human it's <laughs> happening already yeah yeah, yeah exactly AI companions are, are yeah, exactly exactly yeah. and also with with i think also you know with these new apple gadgets and sort of the virtual reality the next yeah. step next level will be that kind of and and you've talked about the metaverse too you know with that contains the avataric uh, concept and you know basically communicating with something that is not inherently human you know, and I think that can be quite healthy to have that externalization. Uh, still, you know, it it still will be like um, an externalized inner dialogue in a way. Um, maybe until AI is absolutely perfected and we can have real, you know, real artificial. Uh, that might be a scary day when that's. It, it might be very scary because then you know what might happen. The, the, They'll the, be like, the fuck AI. you. Yeah, they want to fuck us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not in the fun way. No, exactly. So this beware. Is, yeah. I, I'm for sure this conversation, like I'm going to have to like think about it again and again and again. Um, because again, as we spoke about, like the tools, they're there. Um, yeah. It's, it's different than it was maybe back in the 60s. It's different mm. than the 70s and 80s, even up to like the mid 2000s, you know? It's a very different world. Mm. Uh, thank you to VPNs and, you know, all that <laughs> stuff too. We have all these tools. And I think the, the question is, what sort of mega golem are we as occultists going to create? You know, maybe exactly. not even knowing. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and uh, I'm not going to th- th- say anything else about it in terms of what I've invested with, but but uh, it's along the lines of what we've been talking about, uh, sort of um, in a bit like an usher or a helper, uh, facilitating things for for other people in terms of just realizing that they need to listen to themselves. That's the the bottom line. That's the main message. Validate whatever it is that you're finding on your. Um, it, in your inner spheres, whether it be the dream spheres or the waking spheres or epiphany spheres or meditation spheres, it's it's all good. It's all good and it's all useful because it's there. Wow. That's that's really inspiring. I'm gonna have to look more into this idea of yeah, what a fun conversation. Yeah. We yeah, had yeah. fun on the podcast too. Now we're having fun again. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And never forget that we might actually simply be figments of your imagination. Don't forget that. I love it because that means my imagination is totally aligned with what I want. It's not a nightmare. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pleasant dream. It's an mm-hmm. exciting, challenging, um, constructive, interesting dream. Yeah, good. Totally. I love it. Well, thank you so much. That was really great. Um is there anything else anybody wanted to add before we start to wrap? I think it was good. What are you up um, to just, next? Oh, yeah. Like, um, so speaking of systems, um, I'm really into something called human design, which is like kind of like astrology on steroids and, and technicolor. Um, and so I've decided to start teaching some of the human design stuff that I've been teaching myself, the source material. So I'm doing that. Hopefully I'll be able to write another book. And it's kind of based on the discussion that we've been having this, like, is it chaos magic 2.0? Is it something else? What's the bridge between feminine, masculine technology, let's say quote unquote nature, East West. It's a continuation of my first book. Um, and you know, I'm always on TikTok shit posting. So there's that too. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good place to find you. And we do we do plan now that we've been doing these morbid anatomy events for a couple of years. We have like the conferences I mentioned that we had, like one in London and Italy and Copenhagen. We collect them together, the the pieces people presented into these books that Carl publishes, oh. The Fenris Wolf. So I do think we'll collect this, the morbid anatomy online series. Um, and like we can kind of either you can send me kind of what you said or I can just transcribe this kind of talk and we can keep, put it in that collection as well. I think this discussion was really good. Yeah, um, that'd be fun. And um, yeah. And then for Carl and I, like I said, you can always find us at our Patreon. We post these magic. We have exclusive content there. I have to mention that all the time because I forget to say that um, where we post every week about our magical and creative practices and talk about this and uh, this kind of stuff there. So I'll put that in the chat. And then our next Psych Art Cult event, um, Carl and his friend Tom Banger are going to be presenting on July 16th. And they were both in the Temple of Psychic Youth back in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and they're going to talk about, not just talk about that time, but talk about like what they kind of learned through the process of like underground networking in these kind yeah. of cultural spheres and how we can use that now and like look towards the future with that kind of framework because it does seem like very relevant and like 
uh, yeah, to this time. And um, I found it. Toby seems to be having a great resurgence. Also, I hear like younger people talking about it more and contacting us about it more and more. So it's really nice to see. So I think that'll be a really fun conversation. And then in September, actually, Carl and I are teaching our first class for morbid anatomy. So we're going to be teaching on Sundays for four weeks uh, in September on the cut-up method and basically how to use the cut-up method and collage. And you can use the cut-up with anything, whether it's like writing, like like kind of proper cut-ups, but collage is obviously cut-up, film editing is cut-up, you know, you can you can apply cut-ups to any kind of medium that you like to use artistically or creatively, and, and not just use it as a creative method, but actually imbue it with intention and have it become yeah. like a magical practice. So we're going to have a, a four-part course on that in September. So that'll be fun. Sounds super cool, all of that stuff. Yeah. So thank you so much. I'm so glad you were able to come and join us here at Morbid Anatomy. Um, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and thank you to all the attendees for being here. And then Morbid Anatomy, you know, their Patreon has like 1,500 pe- people or something crazy on it. So they post this to the to their Patreon for all their patrons to view as well. So it'll be out there. Planting seeds, sowing seeds. See what comes of it. The cosmic garden. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Garden. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I'm, I'm going out into the garden now, so it's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Christina, for hosting us. Thank you, yeah. guys. It's always fascinating. Thank you so much, Joanne, for a great uh, presentation and yeah. a wonderful dialogue with Carl and Vanessa. And um, like Vanessa said, this will go up on our Patreon. We'll have links to all of your um, presences online to share with our um, our followers, and hope to um, make connections there soon. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Jawan Koo. For more, be sure to check out her social media and website and get her book, Spellbound. You can listen to episode 236 for a discussion about that. If you'd like to listen to Carl and Tom Banger's lecture that we discussed at the end of this episode, we have posted the video up at our Patreon. So join us at patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. You can also find it at Morbid Anatomy's Patreon. To sign up for our class on the magic and creative potential of the cut-up method, visit morbidanatomy.org slash classes or visit psychartcult.org Join me this Tuesday, September 5th. I'm presenting a lecture on Freud and the occult as part of the Last Tuesday Society at the Victor Wind Museum online. The talk takes place at 8pm UK time. You can find more information at the thelasttuesdaysociety.org which also has a link in the liner notes to this episode. Visit renderingunconscious.org. And now the song, Drug, The Brilliant Language, from the album Indulgence, Not Abstinence, a collaboration I did with UK Sonic Mastermind, Pete Murphy. 
you can visit his bandcamp, petemurphy.bandcamp.com. You can also listen to our music at Spotify. Links to everything can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode and at renderingunconscious.org. Enjoy. Drug. The brilliant language of drug. The deviation within the drug world. Its progress. Formless. Language. Everything will be a barren and soulless endeavor. Integration of the symbolic. Eros is the burning one. Because you made it happen. To turn people away. May we have some of your, please? Thank you.